and after this 10 years living in here still I don't have any place where I could say yes this is my home in Turkey we have to crucify our ego every day we were wealthy in Iran but now I have to start from zero As people of faith who've taken a supportive stance on refugee resettlement and other issues relating to displaced people, one of the most important things we can do is listen to those for whom we advocate. Listening anchors us to the single truth that must fuel all our efforts, the truth that God created every single person who becomes displaced and loves him or her with a depth we cannot comprehend. My name's Jacob Mel. Welcome to Beyond Soundbites. This narrative podcast series is an invitation for you to join me as a listener. It speaks most naturally to those who already support displaced people in some way and are motivated by their faith, particularly a Christian one. But if you're neutral or suspicious about refugee issues or don't resonate with Christian language, I hope you'll keep listening anyway. In the first series, we'll hear from refugees living in Turkey. But before we get there, I'd like to invite you into the landscape of my own involvement with displaced people. Then we can move on together as listeners. The shelves in the storage room where we keep household items and furniture for newly arriving refugee families sit stark and empty like winter tree limbs. All that remains scattered across them are things unfit to give away. A blanket peppered with cat hair, a dozen shadeless table lamps standing there, skeletal, I stand there, hands on hips, feeling empty myself. The fluorescent lights magnify the room's naked shabbiness. Most of the marble-patterned floor tile was ripped out long ago, leaving bare, cracked concrete, a few islands of tile scattered about. A rusted beam running up the front wall sheds a thick maroon paint like snakeskin. But most of all, my eyes return to the spiderweb cracks in the plaster behind the empty shelves. It's August 2016. I've been working with a refugee resettlement organization in Chicago for a decade. This fall, in a wild push to meet President Obama's goal of resettling 85,000 refugees by October 1st, 15,000 more than usual, the State Department has kicked into a gear that none of us knew it had. Even my Bosnian co-worker, who came in the massive waves of refugees from the Balkans in the 90s, has never seen things so crazy. From June to September, the U.S. takes in 40,000 refugees. It's one manifestation of how governments around the world scramble to respond to the displacement crisis that burst into international conscience a year before when a Turkish journalist photographed the body of a Syrian boy on a beach, one of 5,000 people we call migrants and refugees who drowned in the Mediterranean trying to reach Europe that year. With at least 20 million more people displaced in the world than there were in the wake of World War II, I'm convinced accepting more refugees is the right thing for America to do. But the manner in which it's happening at that moment overwhelms the organizations the State Department contracts to do the -the on-the-ground labor of actually getting people settled. My office becomes a triage center for four months as we try to resettle triple the number we're staffed for. That's why I'm standing on the cold concrete, staring hollow-eyed at the empty shelves. Across the parking lot, my coworker heaves herself up into one of our 15-passenger vans and pulls out down the alley, her second trip to O'Hare Airport that week. 
She picks up a Sudanese family of four and a pair of Iraqi newlyweds and brings them to a derelict motel where they'll stay for two weeks. Welcome to America. The thought of it cuts me and fills me with shame, but so many are coming so fast we can't find affordable apartments for them with our limited resources. I can't find reliable help to move furniture and set up apartments. Volunteers are donating, but we're still running out of towels, winter coats, brooms, dishware, toilet paper, pots and pans. I try to buy some pillows at Walmart, but we've maxed out our company credit card. I swear at the cashier. I'm exhausted, angry at God and everyone else. Now fast forward to January. We've made it through the arrival surge. The elections are over. And 81% of the white evangelical community voted for a president who sets to work dismantling a program that has allowed 3 million vulnerable people to come to America and begin new lives since 1980. The week after the first travel ban, we have to let four staff go because of funding. I grudgingly take on the role of overseeing our landlord relationships, and soon we've got a dozen families and singles who arrived during the surge facing eviction. A single mom with four kids from Afghanistan, a torture survivor from Baghdad, a Syrian father who refuses to pay rent because he says we found him a bad apartment, as if we had endless options. My resentment calcifies to numbness. My heart, mind, and stomach sit inside me like stones. I find my own ways of dehumanizing the people I'm supposed to be helping because facing their humanity means facing my shortcomings as a service provider. I call them cases instead of people. I take the back door out of the office so I don't have to talk to them. One day in May, I realize that for me, just like for the rest of the world, displaced people have become nothing but a problem to solve one-dimensional characters whose stories I don't care to know. So I ask my boss if I can take six months off, and she says yes. I rest for a few weeks, then start planning a trip to Turkey. I tell you all this at the outset of this podcast for two reasons. First, to let you know that I've put some time in when it comes to working with displaced people. I'm not a clueless banner waver. I understand that welcoming refugees can come at a cost. Second, to let you know that I believe listening is so important because I know what happens to my own perception of refugees when I fail at it. I set out for Turkey because I knew my ears could no longer hear, my eyes could no longer see, and apparently neither could the eyes and ears of American evangelicalism. During the seven weeks of the trip, each person I met invited me to listen and encounter anew the personhood behind the word refugee, the meaning of home and the presence of God in their stories and my own. I trust they will extend the same invitation to you in the following episodes. This series of Beyond Soundbites was created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. Other organizational partners include the Refugee Language Program, Exodus World Service, Tucson Refugee Ministry, Global Community Partners, and Abounding Service. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. Griffin Jackson was our content editor and story advisor. 
Brett Ratliff mixed the episodes. We'd love to create another series of episodes that go beyond sound bites in search of the personhood of displaced people, but we need your help. Find out how to donate and support at beyondsoundbitespodcast.org.